0: We are in Galatians chapter three, and Paul has just finished explaining that Abraham was saved by faith, and Abraham received a promise from God that through his family line would come the one who would bless all humanity, past, present, and future. That promise was speaking, of course, of Jesus, the Messiah, and through faith in Jesus, all would have the opportunity to receive salvation and the Holy Spirit. Paul has successfully argued in a logically irrefutable manner that salvation can only be obtained through faith in God and his promise. That's the way it worked for Abraham. That's the way it worked for every Old Testament saint. That's the way it works for the Jews. And that's the way it works for the Gentiles. Nobody is saved by keeping the Old Testament Mosaic law, those rules, regulations, and rituals that were given to Moses and then recorded in places like the Ten Commandments. Nobody has ever earned salvation by keeping the law because the law is an absolute standard. In other words, you must keep it perfectly, flawlessly, without a single failure in order to meet its standard, which is God's standard. Obviously, that's impossible. That's why the law can't save anyone, and only faith can do that, which leads to the logical question or objection. Well then, what was the purpose of the law? Why did God give it to us? And Paul is going to address that question here in the rest of chapter 3. So if you would, turn to verse 19 of chapter 3 of Galatians, and we'll jump right in. What purpose, then... Does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, which is Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made. The law gave us a scoring system, a method of measurement with which to evaluate our ability to meet God's standard. Any honest person would quickly conclude that they consistently and woefully fail to live up to God's standard. That's gonna be our first fill in. Would you write this down? The law reveals sin, but does not remove sin. The law reveals sin, but does not remove sin. The law was given to reveal the reality that we were under a curse and in need of a redeemer because we couldn't meet God's standard. The word till there in verse 19 tells us that the law was always designed to be temporary. The law served as a forerunner making us aware of our sin, that we might gladly receive and welcome the Redeemer that God would later send, his son, Jesus. I was thinking about it this week as I was preparing the message, and I realized that I think there's some real parallels between the ministry of the law and the ministry of John the Baptist, who served as a forerunner for Jesus himself. And what was John's central message? It was repent, repent. It was get ready because the Savior, the Messiah, is coming. Prepare your hearts to receive him. That was what John's ministry was all about. He was the last Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament era really ended with John, even though he's mentioned in the New Testament. His ministry was essentially the final appeal of the law, pointing the way to Jesus. And I just want to read to you some excerpts from John chapter 1. You can turn to the First chapter of John's gospel, if you'd like, and I'll read them along with you. It's going to help us, I think, understand the ministry of the law a little bit better by looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. In John 1, verse 6, we read this. There was a man sent from God, just as the law was sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Just as the law was not salvation, the law was sent to testify about the Lord and about his holiness so that people would turn to the Lord, to Jesus, the light, when he came. Verse 15 John bore witness of him, that's Jesus, and cried out, saying, "'This was he of whom I said, "'He who comes after me is preferred before me, "'for he was before me.'" Just as Jesus is far more important than the law and Jesus existed before the law. "'And of his fullness we have all received, "'and grace for grace, "'for the law was given through Moses.'" But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 19, it says, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Or in other words, prepare the way of the Lord. That's exactly what the law was given for. Verse 29 The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's exactly what the law did. It pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The law directed attention onto Jesus. And when Jesus had come, the law's purpose ended. When Jesus came, John's ministry came to a close. So how should we view the law? Well, I'd suggest the same way we view John the Baptist. And what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? He said, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus said that, obviously, other than himself, John was the greatest man who had ever lived up to that point. I always think that would be an incredible quote to have on one's resume. Assuredly, I say to you, Among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than, and then your own name. And having that attributed as a quote to Jesus Christ would look pretty good on a resume. I actually have a similar quote on my resume, but it's attributed to my mother. And so it carries a little bit less weight. (laughs) The law is one of the greatest revelations of God that humanity has received. It's precious because it reveals God's character and holiness And most importantly, it makes us aware of our sin and leads us to Jesus. The law is a good thing, it's a wonderful thing and we value it and we treasure it in its right place, understanding what its purpose was and what its purpose is. We should love and appreciate the ministry of the law as we love and appreciate the ministry of John the Baptist. So write this down. While neither the law nor John the Baptist could save anyone, We love both because they illuminated the one who could. They illuminated the one who could save us. And then speaking of the law, going back to Galatians, Paul writes, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, this is very interesting. A little bit of obscure Bible trivia here. Paul tells us that when God gave Moses the law, God did not give it directly to Moses on Mount Sinai. God gave the law to angels who then gave it to Moses. And the angels acted as the middlemen, as the mediators of the law. And so if this sounds sketchy to you, because I know this might be something new, you're like, I don't know, Jeff, this sounds like it could be a little heretical or something like that. I'll just put your mind at rest by telling you that the same thing is repeated by Stephen, Stephen who also refers to it as though it's a commonly known concept. And he talked about it in Acts chapter 7, verse 53. And then this idea is mentioned as well in Hebrews 2, 2. Angels mediated between God and Moses, and then Moses mediated between the angels and the people. So the law passed through two mediators, angels and Moses and that's going to be important in just a minute because in verse 20 Paul goes on and says now a mediator does not mediate for one only but God is one. When I was researching this I found out this verse is infamously difficult to interpret even in the original Greek because Paul is writing Galatians in in a passionate fired up furious almost emotional manner and so he's saying some things very passionately that are difficult to translate from the original Greek. We don't have any confusion about his main point but there's a few little sections where we're not exactly sure what he's saying. Not in any way that would cause real problems with the text though but when I read up on this at the last count there were over 300 different interpretations of verse 20 and Paul's point seems to be that mediators are only needed when more than one party is involved. If you're making a deal with yourself, you don't need a mediator. But as we discussed in our previous study, the covenant promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15 was entirely dependent upon God. Abraham had no part in it. He was a witness and a beneficiary of that covenant, but he was not a party to it. In contrast, the law had... Two parties, God and man. If man did his part, God would grant salvation. If man kept the law, God would give man salvation. It's an if you do this, then that kind of covenant between two parties. God's promise, the one he gave to Abraham in Genesis 15, is superior to the law because that promise rested entirely on God's perfect faithfulness. God promised to do it, whether Abraham was faithful or not. God was the one making, keeping, and delivering on that covenant. And God's promise is further superior to the law because the promise God gave to Abraham, he gave directly to Abraham rather than through mediators like angels or another man. Verse 21 Is the law then against the promises of God? In other words, does the law then contradict the promise that God gave to Abraham? Does it work against God's promise? Paul says, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So if the law could have saved people, then it would be contradictory to the promise because it would have provided an alternative and conflicting method of salvation, But if the law could have saved people, then that would have been God's plan. There would have been no need to send Jesus as a redeemer and savior. And this is a really important bit of logic that Paul is using here from an apologetics perspective. Because for thousands of years, it has been popular to hold the belief that there are many ways to God, many paths. It's a popular belief for obvious reasons. It allows you to avoid offending anyone by making the claim that there is only one way to be saved. And we all know that in today's society, the worst sin that you can commit is the sin of intolerance, the sin of offending someone, the sin of claiming that you know the truth and therefore all other views are false or incorrect. The concept of many paths to God falls under the umbrella term pluralism. And the problem with pluralism logically is that it makes the death of Jesus completely meaningless because if there are other ways to be saved then Jesus didn't need to be beaten humiliated and crucified and if Jesus didn't need to do those things then all of that was not some beautiful example or lesson of love for mankind it was completely meaningless it was as meaningful as me lying down in the middle of the highway and claiming that I'm laying down my life to set an example of sacrificial love. And if Jesus' death was completely unnecessary and meaningless, then why would we worship him as God? Why should we celebrate his death? If his death was completely unnecessary, then he was likely not right in the head. He was delusional or he was a liar. But he was definitely no hero. He's no martyr. He's no God. It would also make our Heavenly Father a terrible father as on the night of his arrest, Jesus prayed to him three times in the garden of Gethsemane in anguish, sweating blood, asking if there were any other way to atone for humanity's sins and that if there was, that that path would be pursued instead. But there was no other way. The law or any other religion could not save man could not result in the forgiveness of his sins, could not make a way to heaven. But if there was, then God the Father flat out and needlessly ignored the prayers of his only begotten Son. That's the logic behind Paul's point. If the law was truly a path to salvation, then Jesus would not have come to earth to die in our place. But Jesus did come to the earth to die in our place because the law could not save us. There was no other way. And the Father told Jesus that in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you'll recall Jesus' response was, then not my will but yours be done. There was no other way, and that's still the case. Only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Make a note of this. If the law or any other religion could save us, then the death of Jesus was meaningless, and God the Father was unbearably cruel toward his only begotten Son. Pluralism is incompatible with the teachings of the Bible, as is the idea of salvation by the law. Verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin, would you underline all, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What the law has done is it has revealed the truth that everyone is guilty of sin. Everyone has failed to live up to the standard of the law. To what end? For what reason? Why does the law do this? So that we might recognize our need for a savior and welcome Jesus when the gospel message is revealed to us. Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. If you grew up in the church, you probably grew up with an Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, law, grace, understanding of the Bible. You know, the view that the Old Testament covered the Old Covenant of the law, and the New Testament covered the New Covenant of grace. You've got the law in the Old Testament, grace in the New Testament, but it's actually not that simple. Because before the law was given, for over six centuries there was grace, simple salvation by faith. Just think of how Abraham was saved. God gave him some promises. Abraham said, cool, I believe you, God. And God said, well, if you believe me, then I declare you righteous. It was faith, then the law, then faith again. The first time, faith was based on what God had promised he would do. The second time, faith was based on what God Had done through Jesus. So, why was the law given then after six centuries of salvation by faith, beginning with Abraham? Well, as we read back in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. You see, men began to say, Cool, I'm saved by faith. I guess I'll just do whatever I want in the meantime. And then people began to say, You know what? I'm a pretty great guy. I don't need saving. They began to no longer be amazed that God loved them and wanted a relationship with them and was going to make a way for their sins to be forgiven. They began to believe, man, I'm pretty good, because they just started looking at each other and saying, I'm better than him, I'm, I'm better than her, I'm, I'm, I'm a good dude. And like a delusional middle-aged man who has gained weight but convinces himself he hasn't by sucking in his gut every time a photo is taken, people <laughs> convince themselves that they were fine. Everything was fine. So the Lord had to send the law in order to give them a mirror to look into that would show them the truth. He had to give man the law to show him what he was actually being compared to. He wasn't being compared to other people. He was being compared to God and his holiness and his perfection. The Lord gave the law in order that we might recognize and see our need for a savior The law was like an unflattering photo that someone takes of you when you're not expecting it that shows you as you truly are. If men were that middle-aged man who was out of shape, the law was that photo that caught them from an unflattering angle and no longer allowed them to say, everything's fine, I'm in the exact same shape I was when I was a teenager. It showed the ugly, awful truth. That's what the law did, that we are sinners and we need a savior. Verse 24, Therefore, underline the rest of this verse, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Just as a tutor or a teacher has to teach you not only the things you don't know but also the things you don't even know that you don't know, the law was given to teach everyone the truth that would lead them to Jesus the Messiah. What's the truth that I'm talking about? The truth that everyone's a sinner and cannot earn their salvation by trying to live up to God's holy standard of perfection. As long as you can look at other people and compare yourselves to them, you can make yourself feel good, but the law lets us see ourselves in comparison to God. If you read the law, if you allow yourself to be confronted by it, if you'll hold up the law and compare it to your life and your heart, none of us will be able to honestly say, you know, I've lived up to this standard. It really is like looking in a mirror because I'm exactly like the law, perfect in every way, and I'll guarantee that I'll live up to it for the rest of my life. None of us could do that. We all fall short, way short. So the law was given to teach us that we're sinners in need of a savior, that we might look to Jesus and be saved, that we might be justified by faith. Paul's point is that justification by faith has always been God's plan. Would you write that down? Justification by faith is, has always been God's plan. And God gave the law as part of his plan to save people by faith. The law wasn't his plan to save people. The law was given to point people to his plan to save people, which is Jesus. And once we turn to Jesus and believe on him to save us, the law has fulfilled its role as a tutor. Verses 24 and 25 are hugely important because they help us understand the purpose and place of the law in the big picture of salvation and the big picture of the Bible. If you're tracking with me and you're understanding what we're talking about, it means that you'll no longer need to ask, what's with all these laws and regulations in the Old Testament in places like Leviticus and stuff? You now know the answer. The law was given to teach us that we're sinners in need of a savior, that we might look to Jesus and be saved, that we might be justified by faith. I'm gonna ask you if you would at this moment to turn to Romans chapter three with me. Romans chapter three. The book of Galatians is kind of a condensed version of the book of Romans in many ways. And so if you wanna understand in a bigger, broader sense what Paul's writing about in Galatians, I recommend to you the study of the book of Romans. And so in Romans three, Paul's gonna share some things that I think elaborate on what we're talking about here in Galatians. So we'll begin in Romans chapter three, verse 19, and we'll move through this pretty quick, just point out a few things along the way. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law was given to shut up anyone who claimed to be quote unquote good and reveal the truth to everyone that we're all guilty of not meeting God's standard of holy perfection. None of us are good because God is the standard of good and compared to him, we're not even on the chart of comparison. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul says the law saves nobody. There's not going to be anyone in heaven who is saved by the law. The law's purpose is to give us knowledge awareness of our sinfulness. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He says all those Old Testament books of the law and all the prophets in the Old Testament were pointing ahead to the Messiah, the Savior God would send as his plan to save us from our sins and make us righteous. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Jesus was that Messiah, and he was always God's plan of salvation. Through faith in him, we are saved. Then Paul says, for there is no difference. For, underline this famous verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whoever we are, we have this in common. We've all sinned and failed to meet the standard of God's law. But now we are, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Propitiation means atonement or payment. So God provided Jesus to atone for our sins in our place, then Paul says, by his blood, so that we could be saved, then he says, through faith, saved through faith. And God did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Here's the idea. All those Old Testament saints, all those believers who died during the Old Testament era, God withheld judgment of their sins. He delayed judging their sins. How's that possible? Wouldn't there have to be some type of judgment when they died? How could they go to heaven if their sins weren't yet paid for by Jesus? Well, they didn't go to heaven. God had to put them somewhere to wait for Jesus to atone for their sins, to wait while he delayed his judgment of them. And that's exactly what the Lord did. All those believers who died before Jesus rose from the dead went to a place known in scripture as the bosom of Abraham. That weird name was based on the Jewish concept of a child resting their head against their father's chest. And to the Jews, Abraham was the father of their faith. The idea was a place of rest and comfort. The bosom of Abraham exists in a spiritual dimension, in a place known in scripture as Hades. Without getting into a whole other study, which I'd love to do, and you're thinking, Jeff, I wouldn't, but without getting into a whole other study, when Old Testament saints died, their spirits went to the bosom of Abraham, a pleasant and wonderful place, but not heaven, not the presence of God. And their spirits waited there while God withheld judgment until Jesus had atoned for their sins on the cross and risen again from the dead. Once that happened, Jesus went down to the bosom of Abraham, gathered up all of those saints, and led them victoriously up to heaven. There is nobody in the bosom of Abraham today. It's empty. It's no longer needed because God doesn't have to delay judging his saints because Jesus has paid for all of their sins and ours. And as Paul has explained in our previous studies in Galatians, all those Old Testament believers were saved by faith. They were saved because they believed that God would make a way for them to be with him. None of those Old Testament believers were saved by the law. So God delayed his judgment of the Old Testament saints, then Paul says in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. If you could be saved by the law, you'd have something to boast about because then you could say, I'm a good person. That's why I'm going to heaven. I'm a better person than other people. But Paul says, nobody's saved by the law. So you've got nothing to boast about. Anyone who is saved is saved by Jesus meaning that the only thing you have to boast about is what Jesus has done for you. I love that. This reality is a huge part of how God and his word destroy the concepts that underpin racism. Because racism is built on a belief of superiority. It's a personal group believing themselves to be superior to another, and then using that belief as a basis to justify the mistreatment, exploitation, exploitation and separation of anyone outside the group. The gospel teaches that in all the ways that matter most, all peoples are equal. All are created by God. All are guilty as sinners under the law. All cannot save themselves. All have had their sins paid for on the cross. All can only be saved by placing their faith in Jesus. And all are invited to become adopted sons or daughters in the family of God. Make a note of this. Our shared guilt under the law and shared hope of salvation through Jesus destroy the notions of superiority that undergird racism. I'll say it again. Our shared guilt under the law and shared hope of salvation through Jesus destroy the notions of superiority that undergird racism. It was not some secular essay on human rights that drove the movement to abolish slavery. It was the gospel. It was Christian men reading their Bibles and being deeply convicted by the truth of the gospel, which exposed the lies that they were using to justify slavery. This is why Paul says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. While Christians have an obligation to work for justice on the earth, we must do so with the understanding that only the gospel can truly solve issues like racism because only the gospel reveals the truth of the matter, the truth that we're all sinners before God. We all need a savior and we're all saved the same way by faith in Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about here. In verse 28, he says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Whoever you are, there's only one way to be saved, placing your faith in Jesus. Now, where does that leave us with regards to the law? Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You see, the law can only be a tutor that leads us to Jesus because the law is true. It's good. It's right. It's holy. If it wasn't, it wouldn't convict us of sin and cause us to realize our need for a savior. That's why we're thankful for the law. That's why we appreciate it. It's a grace from God when we understand its purpose. And the moral aspects of the law are still universal truths that show us the best way to live and enjoy the goodness of God in our marriages, families, workplaces, and relationships. Let me put it this way. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, you're not going to believe this great news. Somebody just paid $100,000 at the courthouse on your behalf and settled your debt. You'd say, what are you talking about? $100,000? For what? A traffic violation. You'd say, what are you talking about? That is ridiculous. Get out of here. I don't even know what you're speaking of. You see, because you'd be completely ignorant of your guilt. And so you wouldn't appreciate the gift at all. You wouldn't value the price that someone had paid on your behalf. You'd think they were stupid, delusional, out of their mind. But what if I said, didn't you know? that today there is a convention for elderly blind people taking place in our city? There's 10,000 of them in our town right now. And there are signs everywhere warning you to be careful and drive no faster than 30 kilometers an hour. And you blew through town this morning, going 60. And I know you didn't notice, but you hit 88 people this morning with your car and they all died. You'd be shocked and you'd say, well, I had no idea, I didn't notice any signs, I didn't see anything, neither did they. I was completely unaware there was a convention going on. I didn't even know that there were blind elderly people everywhere. I was just doing what I always do. Well, that might be true, but it happened. And you're guilty. You violated a good and sensible law that was in place today, and therefore you've been fined $100,000. But there's this guy in the church who saw what happened and who cares about you. And he went straight over to the courthouse. And here's the thing. He paid your fine for you. When you know the story, when you understand the reality of the situation, when you get the details, it completely changes your perspective, doesn't it? You wouldn't laugh it off then. You'd be overwhelmed with gratitude and you'd have two questions. Who paid that price for me? And why did they do it? That's why the law was given, to help us understand our need for a savior and to help us understand how great his sacrifice was for us, the price he paid for us on the cross. This is why if you try to share the gospel with somebody, but they have no awareness of their own faults or frailty or failures or brokenness, the good news of the gospel just sounds like nonsense to them. It's because they don't understand the context. They, they don't understand why Jesus needed to die for them. And so they think it's meaningless, it's stupid. When you encounter that response in a person, they need to be shown themselves in the mirror of the law of God. The 10 Commandments and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which revealed an even higher standard of the law. When someone doesn't understand their brokenness, the idea of grace will seem meaningless. It's worthless in the mind of a person Who doesn't think they need it. That person needs to be brought to the place of understanding that they're broken. But if you haven't noticed, people don't usually like it when you hold up the mirror of the law to show them that they're broken. It's not pretty. It's not a message people want to hear. But praise God because God is gracious. God will often allow life to irrefutably reveal our brokenness. We might not be open to someone else telling us we're broken, but God will use life to show us the truth that we are in ways that we cannot deny. So I want to encourage you, always be on the lookout for God's work in someone's life. Always be looking for someone who's going through the pain of realizing that they're a broken person, because God is revealing the truth to them. And the gospel's going to make sense to that person. It's going to be good news. Here's why. Because the gospel explains why we're broken. It gives us that answer, but it doesn't stop there. It gives us the hope of being made whole through a relationship with Jesus, having our sins forgiven. As David wrote in Psalm 19, it's on your outlines, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So who's converted? The one who interacts with the law of the Lord. Then David goes on to write, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Imagine a flight to Hawaii, sounds pretty good right now. A couple of hours into the journey, The pilot calls the lead flight attendant to the cockpit and he tells her, we've discovered a leak in our fuel tanks and it's getting worse. We're not going to make it to Hawaii. In fact, we're not going to make it anywhere. The plane is going to go down. But the good news is that this plane is stocked with enough parachutes for everyone on board. The flight attendant wipes her nose as she's tearing up and, and getting understandably emotional. She she pulls herself together, heads out into the cabin with a, with a smile and says, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Could I interest any of you in our parachute program? I think you'll find that it will bring a new level of peace, joy, and love to your life. It's just going to bless you and make your flight so much more enjoyable. Who wants one? Three, maybe four people raise their hands and you're one of them. And as the flight attendant passes you your parachute, you can see other passengers snickering and talking to each other while pointing at you. And before long, you begin to realize that your parachute is kind of uncomfortable. It's making you sweaty and even more cramped in your seat. And you begin to think to yourself, this is ridiculous. I'm not more comfortable, I'm less comfortable. This isn't bringing me any joy or peace at all. And so, after 20 minutes or so, you take off your parachute and you say to the flight attendant you lied to me you said this parachute would make me comfortable full of joy and warmed by love but all i got was ridicule and discomfort i believe this is why we see so many people today leave the western church and seemingly fall away from the faith it's because our pulpits are full of pastors making false promises that following jesus will give you nothing but comfort joy peace and blessings They don't ever talk about the stuff Jesus said, like, take up your cross every day and follow me. They don't talk about the cost of following Jesus and being willing to lay down your life for him day in and day out. And so people get upset and feel like they've been lied to, they've been misled, when their new faith leads to people making fun of them, when it calls them to not participate in sin, when it seems to bring trials and awkwardness into their life, they think to themselves, I was promised love and joy and peace and comfort. I guess it was all just a pitch to try and get my money. Now, same plane, same situation, act two. Another flight attendant heard what the captain said. She enters the cabin and she says, "'Hey, everyone, stop what you're doing. "'Put down your phones. "'Give me your undivided attention.'" The captain has informed me that this plane is losing fuel fast and we're going down. Captain comes over the intercom and says, It's true. Now, who wants a parachute? Guess what? Suddenly people are fighting for parachutes. And no one cares if the rest of the flight is smooth, or if they have enough legroom, or if the straps on the parachutes are chafing their shoulders, or if the entertainment system has enough movies they haven't seen. Nope. Everyone is clinging to their parachute, making sure it's on tight because everyone knows the plane is going down. If we don't even know there's a problem, we won't value someone who offers us a solution. If we don't understand that we're broken and destined for eternal damnation, we won't be interested in the good news of the gospel. But when we see the reality of our situation, when we come face to face with our brokenness, then we can see the gospel for what it is, the glorious, beautiful, undeserved grace of God, the best news we could ever receive. But I thought the Bible said that it's the goodness of God, the kindness of God that leads us to salvation. It is. But we cannot and will not understand the kindness of God until we understand our situation without him. When a person doesn't believe they're broken, they need to understand that they are. When a person understands that they are broken, they need the grace and hope of the cross. And the law was given to help us passengers realize our need for a parachute. I think we can sum it up this way. Make a note of this. The proud need the law and the broken need the cross. The proud need the law and the broken need the cross. As a side note, this should help us understand why Satan works so hard to push certain messages in our culture. Messages that tell us that we're not broken because if Satan can stop us from realizing our brokenness, he'll stop us from realizing our need for the gospel and we won't be open to receive it. We won't be interested in it. So Satan pushes messages like, You're not broken at all. You're whole. You're complete just the way you are. You're everything. You're more than enough. You're wonderful. You're complete. Let me also say this. Imagine that you're on that plane and the flight attendant spills coffee on your lap. In the first story, you'd be upset. Oh, this is so like my life. I can't believe this is happening right now. But in the second story, you wouldn't care. You know why? Because you'd know Hey, my pants are gonna dry as I'm flying through the air with a parachute on my back as the plane crashes into the ocean. That problem's gonna get solved on its own. Not a big deal, right? <laughs> when we whine and complain about little trials in life, it just reveals that we had the wrong expectations. We thought our parachute would make everything easy and comfortable. But when we understand what Jesus has done for us, we'll gladly put up with life's little trials because we're so grateful that we have a parachute. We're so grateful for our salvation. People will say, how are you doing? You'll say, great. They'll say, really? Well, I mean, I know you're going through some stuff and life's not exactly easy right now. We'll say, listen, I've got a parachute. I'm blessed, I'm secure, I'm good. And here's what I know all the discomfort I'm experiencing right now in this seat from wearing this parachute, it's all temporary. It's gonna save my life and do some wonderful things for me. The law is a massive part of the gospel and a massive part of the Bible, and hopefully our brother Paul has helped us to understand it a little bit better today and its place in our lives before and after we're saved. Let's go back to Galatians in verse 25. Paul says, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. When we place our faith in Jesus, we're saved. Our sin is forgiven. The law has done its job of getting us to Jesus. As Paul puts it in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're no longer condemned by our failure to meet the standards of the law because Jesus has died to pay for all those failures, for all those sins. Furthermore, the believer's life is not led by the law, but by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. The Christian life is not guided by a series of do's and don'ts. It's guided by the Holy Spirit within each of us. I want to say this in closing. Do do you have a full view of faith? Here's what I mean. I want to talk about two types of people and think about whether or not you might be one of these two. You know, there's a lot of Christians who understand the gospel and they've received it and they understand it mentally, intellectually, but they don't really feel overwhelmed with gratitude toward Jesus. Maybe you encounter pastors talking about it or other believers talking about it, but when people get moved to the point of weeping with gratitude toward God or overwhelmed with thankfulness, you think maybe that that's just what their personality is like because you've never felt really overwhelmed by the Lord. I want to challenge you with this question. Have you ever looked into the mirror of the law? Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus talks about what sin actually is? what murder actually is, what adultery actually is, where it begins, how our thoughts are as bad as those things in the eyes of God. Have you ever weighed yourself against the law and allowed yourself to be overwhelmed by your own brokenness and sinfulness? And I know you might think, Jeff, that doesn't sound very pleasant. But here's the idea from the Bible. The one who's very grateful is grateful because they understand how much they've been forgiven. And the one who understands how much they've been forgiven is overwhelmed with thankfulness and joy. And if you've never experienced that, then you're missing out on a level of joy that you can have as a Christian, the joy of understanding how much God has forgiven in your life and how much he loves you and how great your salvation is. So if you're in that place where you've never been overwhelmed with thankfulness toward Jesus, would you just be bold enough to ask him, to do that, to overwhelm you with what he has done, for you to open your eyes to see it in a fresh way, I think it'll change the way you see your whole life and it certainly will bless you and take your faith to a whole nother level, a whole nother place of deep love and affection for your savior, Jesus, and the father who sent him. Second type of person, you know, many believers in the early stages of their faith try desperately to clean up their lives they go into this frantic state of of trying to live by do's and don'ts and and they fail and they repent over and over and they come to church and they feel guilty and like failures all the time, even though they're now believers. I just wanna tell you that if that's you, you're still looking in the mirror of the law. You are still going back to that tutor, the law. But the law was only to lead you to Jesus so that your sins could be forgiven and that you could be freed from the condemnation that the law puts on your life. And under Jesus, there's no condemnation. There's only freedom. There's only grace. And so if that's you and you're feeling condemned, but you've given your life to Jesus, I wanna tell you that it's time to graduate from the law, and it's time to embrace grace. And so for you, would you maybe just spend some time thanking God that he saved you, thanking him that your sins are paid for, and thanking him, that you're saved by grace. Confess that and thank him for that until you begin to believe it. The law was given to lead us to the place where we would cry out as Paul did, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And grace was given so that those who place their faith in Jesus might cry out as Paul wrote in the very next verse, I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. The law leads us to the point of hopelessness. How can I be saved? I'm such a wretch. I'm such a mess. But grace and the cross say, Jesus has taken care of that. He saved you. He's paid for every one of your sins. So let's just thank the Lord for that in prayer together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the gift of salvation through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the law, we're grateful for it. It is a grace from you because it points us to your son, Jesus. Lord, I I pray that all of us are overwhelmed with gratitude over our salvation. And if any of us have never really had that experience, would you overwhelm us with an understanding of what we've been saved from and what you've done for us, that we might be more grateful people and have the joy of our salvation to a fuller measure. And Lord, we also pray for for any among us who are just feeling condemned, even though they've placed their faith in you. Lord, would you free them from the condemnation of the law? Would you empower them to step out from under the tutor who has finished his work? And would you saturate their mind and their spirit with the grace of the gospel, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They were saved, they're being saved, and they will be saved by what was done on the cross. The cross is a past tense event. It is taken care of. Our sin is fully paid for. Thank you that there's no condemnation for us, Jesus. We love you, we bless you. In your name we pray, amen.